Welcome back, and thank you for joining us this week for the second episode of The Devil Came Knocking. Before we get started this week, I need to make a correction to last week's episode. Trying to tell these stories as honestly as I possibly can is very important to me. It was pointed out to me by one of the listeners to the podcast that I misspoke last week. I included some testimony that I said was made during the trial. This is not correct. The case would never actually make it to trial, and all six defendants would take a plea deal during jury selection, something we will discuss in future episodes more in depth. The testimony you heard last week was actually from the sentencing hearings. A special thanks to Daniel Cavanaugh for pointing out this mistake to me. Daniel is heavily involved in this case and has a Facebook page, Justice for Karen Howe. I encourage you to check out. I appreciate everyone that takes the time to listen. And if any of you catch a mistake in a future episode, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know. I will make sure it gets corrected. With that taken care of, let's jump into our second episode on the murders of the Lillylid family. Today we will begin to take a look at the group as a whole. Trying to piece together their backstory is somewhat difficult as there are a lot of conflicting stories and also a lot of sensationalized headlines in my opinion. We will also begin to take a look at the events that took place at the Collie Motel what seems to be a catalyst to the crimes, as this is what seems to set the road trip in motion that would lead the group to encountering the Lily Lids at the rest stop in Greene County in Tennessee. I will end this week's episode by discussing what took place after they left the motel, the road trip to Tennessee, all the way leading up to the encounter with the Lily Lids, and I will give my thoughts on all the way the crimes could have been prevented. As we learned last week, the Pikeville Six were a group of teenagers, five of whom had all attended the same high school and all had suffered various forms of trauma and abuse with the exception of Dean Mullins, who by all accounts had a fairly normal childhood. Here is a clip of Randy Mullins, Dean's father, testifying about how often the family attended church. Over the next couple of weeks, as we get deeper into the case, I want you to ask yourself, was this group just pure evil that planned a cross-country killing spree as the prosecution suggests? Was this a case of mob mentality where the teens fed off of each other's actions? Or was this a case of mentally troubled and abused teens and a poor innocent family being failed by the systems around them? Prior to leaving Kentucky, the group reportedly called itself the Wild Bunch. By all accounts, Natasha Cornette seems to be the leader of the group, 
Although she denied this, it's fairly easy to figure out at the very least, she was at least the glue that held the group together. The other key member of the group, at least at this point in the story, appears to be Karen Howe. Natasha and Karen were very close and there were even rumors they were lovers, something both would deny, however. At the time of the crimes, Karen was dating Joseph Reisner, who had previously dated Natasha. The two had remained close even after breaking up, and Dean Mullins had met Natasha in high school, and those two had begun dating. Here's a clip of Joseph's mother testifying about him and Natasha's relationship, as well as a clip of Steve Owens, Dean's attorney, giving his opinion on Dean and Natasha. Had Joe told you about his relationship with Natasha? That he was a friend, that he liked her, that she had had some abuse in her family and that they talked to each other. Did he tell you that, that uh, part of the relationship was uh, discussing her problems and his problems and that, that they tried to help each other? Yeah, they did. That's what he told me, that she was a friend. And mainly that he was excited that she had found Dean because she found somebody that would be good to her. He met Miss Cornette and um, his life was changed forever. These are the four core members of the group and two other teams would join the group in the weeks leading up to the crimes. Crystal Sturgill, who as we discussed last week, joined the group after being kicked out of her family's home after revealing long-suffered sexual abuse at the hands of her stepfather, and Jason Bront, a habitual runaway who the group had picked up off of a street corner just days before the crime. Natasha's trailer was the group's hangout. There they would spend their time drinking, doing drugs, cutting, drinking each other's blood, and playing with the Ouija board. Here is some testimony of Joseph and Natasha talking about the cutting, as well as Madonna talking about the group's partying. Natasha and Karen were obsessed with Anne Rice vampire novels, 
to the point Natasha began to refer to herself as a vampire. There are even rumors Natasha would begin to spell her name backwards, Ah Satan, and that the group painted 666 all over town. Here is another clip of Natasha testifying about her God in court. Karen and Natasha were also into witchcraft and carried two books around all the time, The Book of Black Magic and The Complete Book of Magic and Witchcraft. Natasha claimed to hear voices and Madonna stated she saw the girls perform seances and rituals from the book. Most of the group lived at Madonna's and according to Natasha and Crystal in interviews from prison, she had become fed up with the group. She tried to lay down some rules and the group rebelled. The group's fateful trip would be set in motion when the group decided to spend a Friday night partying at the Kali Motel. On Friday, April 4th, 1997, the group would check into the Kali Motel. A local motel in Pikeville, the group would check into room number seven for a night of partying. The media would use the events that happened this night to portray the group as a cult of devil worshippers. The group would spend the night drinking, doing drugs, playing with the Ouija board, cutting themselves with razor blades, and some was even drinking the other's bloods. Jason reportedly carved Natasha's initials into his arm as well. That night, the teens would do quite a bit of damage to the hotel room. They would set fire to the motel, in interviews, Natasha would claim all the members took part in setting these fires. It was also reported that the group even burnt 666 into the carpet, although this is disputed by Jason's sister in an interview, as she states she was one of the first ones in the motel room afterwards, and that the burn marks did not look like the number 666. These events seemed to be the catalyst to the group running away. Friends and family would claim this was because the group was afraid of the repercussions of their actions at the motel and were headed to New Orleans. The prosecution and media would claim the group had made a pact to go on a cross-country killing spree. Here is a clip of Madonna talking about the group leaving, as well as Natasha talking about the group's plans once they reached New Orleans. I think they just had to leave. They knew that they were going to be picked up from for doing whatever they had done at the Collie Motel. I thought that we would go to New Orleans and we would just split up. You know, um, it's a city, it's pretty big. I thought everybody would go their own way, however way that they wanted to go, that that's where they would go. After leaving the motel room, the group would go back to Madonna's trailer and sleep for a while. Madonna claimed she knew something was wrong with the group when they returned, as they were unusually quiet and walked into the house in a single file line, almost zombie-like, she stated. 
On Sunday morning as the group was leaving Madonna's, Karen would turn and say, the end of times are coming. Madonna stated in an interview that she assumed that their group had had their Ouija board out and was on their weirdo stuff again. The group would then steal two guns, one from Karen's dad. They would also make multiple attempts to steal a car unsuccessfully, at which time Joseph would tell the group that the Tennessee Miles would be a good place to steal a car. So with the stolen guns and money, the group would pile into Joe's mother's little Chevy Citation, headed for New Orleans. Here's a clip of Karen testifying in court about how the group was piled into the car. The group would be pulled over in Gate City, Virginia, just before entering Tennessee by a Virginia State Trooper. And although Jason's dad had reported him kidnapped in Kentucky, no bolo had been issued. So the teens were issued a ticket for going 74 and a 55 and let go. Here is a segment of an interview with A.R. Atkins, the trooper that pulled the group over that day, as well as a clip of Joseph testifying in court about the speeding ticket and the stop. I think if you listen closely, you can hear the regret in A.R. Atkins' voice, the trooper who stopped the group, as he was unable to do anything to successfully stop this crime. The Chevy was overheating the whole trip, and the group knew it needed another vehicle. As the group was traveling down Interstate 81 in Greene County, Tennessee, Karen told the group that she had to pee. The group would exit the interstate at mile marker 41, pulling into a rest stop parking spot next to a cream-colored van with one empty space in between. The van belonged to a religious family who had stopped to have a picnic on their way home from a Jehovah Witness convention in Johnson City. The family was the Lily Lids, who had been having a picnic with the Sinclairs, another religious family who had been at the convention and who had stopped at the rest area with them. Once the Sinclair family had left, Vidar would approach two young women at the rest stop, attempting to share his faith while holding little Peter. This, unfortunately, would seal his fate as well as his family's. That concludes this week's episode. It is my opinion these crimes could have been prevented multiple times. The kids and the lily lids ultimately seem to have been failed by everyone. Teachers, parents, and counselors all had multiple chances to intervene. 
However, no one seemed really interested in helping, and the ones that tried lacked the skills to actually do so. Had the police in Kentucky done their job, the Virginia State Trooper that stopped the group could have prevented the crimes as well. Or if A.R. Atkins, the trooper who made the stop, who claimed to have been put on edge by the group, had just searched the car, he would have found the stolen guns, possibly preventing the crimes himself. No one did anything, however, and it would ultimately be the lily lids that would pay the price for these mistakes. It's hard not to get frustrated with the whole system looking back at these events today. Thank you for joining me this week, and I hope you will return next week when we will take a look at the crimes and exactly what occurred that day in April.